if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Bob Fratz Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Good morning to you. Thanks for being with us. We get rolling now at seven minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on this Wednesday, the 21st morning of the ninth month of the year of our Lord 2020. Good news for you. For the second consecutive week, I believe Wednesday becomes Kersenau Day. Normally we talk to Peter Kersenau on Tuesdays, and for the last two Tuesdays he's had work obligations and bumped to Wednesday, so he will be with us coming up next hour. You are not going to want to miss that conversation. We're going to talk to obviously about the Supreme Court vacancy. We're going to talk to him about uh, the politics of it all and everything that you are witnessing with the Democrats threatening to do everything from impeach the president again to delay a vote on uh, the president's nominee, uh, threatening to impeach Attorney General Bill Barr, threatening to uh, win the Senate and then pack the court with 15 members to discount any uh, potential conservative, meaning constitutionalist majority, threatening to burn it all down if Mitch McConnell takes up the president's nominee and actually orders a hearing, or technically Lindsey Graham in the judiciary, and then a full Senate vote, literally burn down American, American cities, and they have said that figuratively and literally, uh, promising to or threatening to radicalize everyone in response to this. All, by the way, if the president dares do what the Constitution tells him he must do. Uh, so Pete's going to have thoughts on that. And then the other thing that Pete is going to have some thoughts on is the debate that he had on Shannon Bream's show two nights ago, Monday night. I don't know if you saw it, if you stay up that late, but Shannon Bream, Bream had uh, Peter Kersenow on with a left-wing uh, nut from uh, California, whom I've seen before, Ethan Beerman, and uh, they discussed the rioting in the streets. They discussed the rioting in Democrat cities. They discussed how dangerous the American left really is. Until Ethan Behrman said, nope, those are right-wingers doing all of that. <laughs> he literally said that it's the right-wing that is, that is uh, uh, responsible for all of the violence and the carnage. You know, because of all of those right-wing messages that are being painted on the buildings, like Black Lives Matter and All Cops Are Bees. And if you don't know that word, it, it rhymes with uh, mastered. 
all cops are rhymes with masters. Uh, you understand the point. Yeah, those are right wingers that are that are spray penning all of that on all of the build buildings that they destroy and the statues and the monuments and so forth. Yeah, those are definitely right wing talking points. Uh, they actually had that conversation, and Peter will uh, explain that a little bit more in depth coming up in uh, uh, in about an hour at about ten ten. Big story yesterday was as I told you, and as we talked yesterday uh, and Monday about this um, with. Uh, Kathy, uh, excuse me, yeah, with Kathy Johnson and Mike Goldstein, and we talked uh, last uh, Friday with uh, with uh, Lisa Woods and Sarah Fowler, I apologize, I've got notes all over the place here, and Sarah Fowler, members of the Ohio School Board, uh, Board of Education, and we talked about the extraordinary curriculum that is being planned in districts all over this state. And we talked about how dangerous it is because of how violent it is. That's right. It's going to incite violence. Make no mistake about it. We're talking about critical race theory. We're talking about the 1619 Project fiction, fictional work of the New York Times. And we're talking about Black Lives Matter in school. Black Lives Matter in school, That is, or at school. That is an actual curriculum that has been written in order to teach every young person of color in America that they're victims and every young person who is white that they are oppressors and that they are systemically racist. It's in their DNA. It's in their roots. They can't help it. You are racist. You are bad. And you will atone for that. Um, This is what's going to happen. I thank God. Every day of this school year that it is my son's last year in school. Now, fortunately, my son, uh, just like my daughter, who's now at Hillsdale College, attends a Catholic school, so they're not part of the, the public school curriculum. But I am so glad that they are getting out when they are. But then I start thinking, you know, it will only be a few years, probably the bl- it'll feel like the blink of an eye, but a few years from now, both of my children are probably going to fall in love and get married, and then their children, my grandchildren, are going to have to go to these schools. They're going to be guided by the curriculum that is uh, being pushed and presented by today's radical anarchists in the Black Lives Matter movement and their spokespersons, um, sadly, in American schools, in the NEA, the Teachers Associations, Uh, or educators' associations, on school boards, in administrative offices, because the 1619 Project is already being taught in hundreds of school districts around the country. I don't know how many in Ohio, but we know that this is where they are headed. And the 1619 Project, by the way, that work of fiction, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you're new to the show and you're new to the topic, The 1619 Project was a work of fiction by the New York Times that aims to uh, restate or redefine the beginning of the United States from 1776, when we declared our independence from Great Britain, uh, from England particularly, uh, and we, you know, declared our independence and then began the Revolutionary War to earn our freedom, that the real start of the United States of America was in 1619 when the first slaves arrived on uh, North American shores. And it is an absolute atrocity. It is filled with some of the garbage that I just mentioned a few moments ago. And it's not even the worst of it. The Black Lives Matter at school curriculum is worse than the 1619 Project, which is being taught as, his, taught as history in some places. Um, critical race theory is even worse than all that. 
And combining elements of it all into Ohio schools is going to make life very, very dangerous for our young students and, as I mentioned, students to come in the future years, perhaps my grandchildren. I spoke uh, briefly with a member of the Ohio State Board of Education last night, Lisa Woods, who kind of alerted us that the next meeting was coming, which was, of course, Monday. And that's why we had her and Sarah Fowler on uh, on Friday to talk about this. And I asked her how it went. They had public testimony yesterday. Public comments were allowed, five minutes apiece, unless there were questions from board members. And uh, my friends uh, Mike Goldstein and uh, Kathy uh, Johnson from the uh, Proclaiming Justice to the Nations organization, we talk to them all the time about a number of other matters as well, but they testify. And I asked Lisa how it went. And Lisa was, quite frankly, a little bit distraught. She's a member of the school board. And she listened yesterday, and she also, of course, observed the reactions of her fellow board members and listened to, the, uh, to their statements. And the bottom line is, she said it was effective. There were a lot of great comments, including from Mike Goldstein and Kathy Johnson, as well as from a gentleman by the name of uh, Ian Rowe, a black man who was a part of the 1776 Unites organization, which is dedicated to preserving the actual history of America. Now, the leadership, by the way, of 17... I don't want to get too far off into the weeds here, but the leadership of 1776 Unites, they're all African-American. Well, not all. The vast majority of them. And I'm looking at their their, uh, scholars right now. Charles Love, Clarence Page, Coleman Hughes, uh, DeForest uh, um, uh, Sores, Dr. Carol Swain, Glenn Lowry, Harold Black, Ian Rowe, the mentioned man I told you about, Jason Hill, whom we've had on the program before from DePaul University, John McWhorter, John Butler, Joshua Mitchell. These are all African Americans. Then there, uh, who else? Um, uh, Yaya Fanzi, uh, or Fanuzi, I should say, Wilfred Riley, and uh, then a couple of other uh, Caucasians, uh, Stephen Harris, Stephanie Deutsch, uh, who else? Shelby Steele, uh, no, uh, no uh, uh, who else is there? I'm trying to, the screen is frozen on me. Jonathan Mitchell came up. Um, so anyway, th- these individuals that I'm talking about um, are almost all, what is that board? What did I just describe? About 90% African-American, maybe 95%. And they are fighting to actually keep American history being taught as it is, real American history. And the birth of this nation being in 1776, and yet despite the fact that slavery would endure until 1865, it was the foundation that was set for freedom for all and for equality for all when the United States was born. So all of this curriculum is, is, extra- or curricula is extraordinarily important, and it is being erased by modern leftists, by Democrats in control of boards of education, at the district level, 600-plus districts across this state, and, of course, at the state level. Lisa and Sarah on the board in Kirsten Hill, they're fighting hard uphill uh, to undo this because of the extraordinary danger or danger that it poses. Number one, it poses danger of wiping out true American history. And number two, it puts children in danger. It puts children at odds with one another. It is going to teach generations of children to come if this is allowed, like I said, young white kids to feel guilty and ashamed of the white skin that they were born with because it references something that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago 
and that they owe apologies and some sort of reparations to their 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 classmates and friends and neighbors who have darker skin than they do. And then it's going to teach those darker skin kids that they are always going to be a permanent underclass. They are always going to be victimized by a systemic racist society that owes them. It owes them something because of what was done to people hundreds of years ago. So that's kind of where it is. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Also yesterday, staying in state after a summer full of savage questions that uh, reporter Jack Windsor, investigative reporter Jack Windsor, has asked Mike DeWine. I think it was the most savage that we have seen yet yesterday. I'm going to play that for you and listen to Mike DeWine's non-response. So we're going to talk about that, about that especially as it pertains to the CDC's most recent admission that, yeah, it looks like um, the COVID virus cannot be transmitted through the air. That's right. They have removed that guidance from their website that COVID can be transmitted through the air. Uh, So it kind of really led nicely into uh, Jack Windsor's question of Mike DeWine yesterday, which I will share with you coming up in just a bit. So I've got to Peter Kirsten now coming up at 1010. I've got a lot of audio for you, and I want to talk, uh, get your thoughts on this uh, critical race theory and uh, uh, the curriculum that is aimed at destroying not only current generations of children, but future generations as well in our schools. 216-901-0945, This is the authority on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 924 AM 1420, The Answer. Appreciate you being with us. Um, I'm going to save the Jack Windsor clip, his savage question yesterday for um, uh, for Mike DeWine for after the bottom of the hour news so that I get a couple of other things in here before uh, we get there. And I do want to uh, give you the latest on the uh, Supreme Court battle. Um, I saw another great exchange this morning in which uh, one of the liberal uh, or leftists uh, who, are, who are advocating for the destruction of the United States and all of her institutions from its founding, it's not an overstatement. That's not, not hyperbole. This is what they want to do. Arguing that the Senate deserve, or excuse me, the Democrats deserve the right to retaliate. This was the word that was used, to retaliate if President Trump fills the seat vacated by Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg's untimely death. And the response to that was, uh, wait a minute, you're, you're, you're calling for retaliation? What is this? Is this a mafia war? You whack one of ours, we whack two of yours? What do you mean retaliation? What would the president be doing that's illegal? What would the president be doing here that he isn't constitutionally obligated to do, which is to appoint a replacement to the Supreme Court? What would Mitch McConnell be doing other than his job? Other than his job, what would Mitch McConnell be doing wrong here? That it would deserve, quote, retaliation. And the retaliation, as I noted in the open, would include packing the court, winning the Senate, and then packing the court with as many as 15 Supreme Court justices to completely um, uh, undo, if you will, uh, the Republican-slash-conservative-slash-constitutionalist, and I say this in air quotes, um, six to three majority that could be coming 
And I say that because it's at the very best, it's 5-4. In my belief, and I really mean this, if President Trump is successful in getting a true constitutional originalist like Amy Coney Barrett appointed to the court and confirmed, um, supposed conservative Chief Justice John Roberts will go fully to the left. Uh, he's already decided a number of extraordinarily important cases by going with the liberals, siding with the liberals on the court already. And if Ginsburg, a far-left activist, is replaced by Amy Coney Barrett, who is considered far-right, but technically she's just a constitutionalist, if that upsets the balance of the court, I think John Roberts, in the interest in his mind of fairness, in his mind, mind you, he will go solidly to the left in virtually every opportunity that he has, just to close that gap a little bit. That's what I believe. And that's why they're talking about packing the court. Uh, in the Los Angeles Times, National Review writes about this. Jonah Goldberg wondering why the idea of a grand bargain over the, uh, the vacant Supreme Court seat isn't catching on among senators, despite gaining steam from among eggheads. Perhaps, he says, such a deal hinges on the ability of politicians to trust other politicians to keep their word and stand up to the bases of their own parties for the long-term good of the country. And everyone is out of practice with that sort of thing. Now, what um, uh, Charles Cook in the National Review says in response to that is, you know, this is not about standing up to your base. This is about the rule of law. And it's also about the politics of making decisions like this. What makes, asks Cook, what makes... It's so uh, apparent to the far left that the Democratic senators would want to go along with court packing. It just doesn't make any sense. Who is going to, who's going to go along with packing the court among Democrat senators? Is Joe Manchin going to do that? Joe Manchin voted to confirm Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh. Joe Manchin of West Virginia is a Democrat and he voted to vote to confirm each of the last two uh, Trump nominees. John Tester? Kirsten Cinema, any meaningful Democrat Senate majority would be built atop victories in Arizona, Iowa, and North Carolina. Are those swing staters that might win in those states if they're Democrats really then going to line up behind this nuclear option of court packing during the first year of their new jobs? And that's before we even reach the House. If Joe Biden wins the presidency, it's going to be apparent to a good number of swing district House members they only have two years in which to operate freely before the inevitable inevitable backlash against them as the incumbent. How many of those members are going to choose to engage in a cockamamie plan to blow up the 1869 Judiciary Act? In other words, what National Review and Charles W. Cook are saying, and I think accurately, do not be afraid of the threats. They are essentially throwing everything they can in terms of threats up against the wall, hoping something sticks and it will stop the Republicans from confirming President Trump's nominee, which we should know by Friday or Saturday. Of course, the president being respectful, waiting until the services for Ruth Bader Ginsburg are held. But essentially, they're throwing everything they can to just scare the Republicans into not doing their constitutional duty and appointing a replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg and confirming her or him. And we know it's going to be her because the president said so, so I guess that's okay. But in other words, 
what Cook and, and others and I am saying is don't believe the threats. They are trying to hold that Senate or that uh, uh, SCOTUS seat hostage, saying if you don't leave that open for the next president to fill, we will do A, B, C, D, and E to you and to the country. We will ride in the streets. We will burn more things down. We will pack the court. We will we will file impeachment articles. We'll do everything that we can to pay you back to retaliate for you doing your job. It's mafia style governing. Mafia-style politics, and it's the only kind that Democrats know. And we'll be right back. It's the Bob France Authority here on AM 1420. The answer. All right, 936. Thanks for being with us. By the way, I should probably make this announcement. Um, You're going to get five hours out of six of the Bob France Authority today because I'm going to be sitting in for Dennis Prager coming up at noon. So we'll take you until 11 now. Then I'll catch my breath from 11 to 12 while we listen to Mike Gallagher. And then I will be on for Dennis Prager nationally. My guest uh, on the Prager show coming up at 1 o'clock is one of the individuals who spoke yesterday at the Ohio Schools uh, Board of Education meeting. Um. Ian Rowe, I mentioned to you, he was one of the list of African Americans running the 1776 Unites Project, or organization rather, and um, he is uh, he spoke eloquently, just rave reviews of his presentation yesterday, talking about the uh, danger of and the inaccuracy of the non-historical nature of the 1619 Project and why the 1776 Unites curriculum is so important. Anyway, he's going to be joining me on the Dennis Prager Show, and we're trying to lock that in for about 1 o'clock, top of hour number two, so hopefully you can listen to that as well. Now, having said that, uh, I've, I've got so much to do. I want to get to Jack Windsor's question for Mike DeWine yesterday, because Kirsten now is coming up at 10, so I'm going to get all this done in the next 20 minutes or so. Uh, and you a couple of your phone calls, too. I see you on hold. Stay there. I'm coming to you. But I want to do this first, since I was just talking about uh, the Ginsburg and SCOTUS seat, of course. Yesterday and Monday, I uh, admitted, because I'm an honest person, and I will always you know, be honest about the way these things are going, even if it makes my side look bad, and I, I admitted honestly that both sides um, of the aisle were being hypocritical in the replacement of Justice Ginsburg compared to where they were four years ago. Democrats are giant hypocrites because they screamed it was the Senate's obligation to take up a president's nominee, even in an election year, even so close to the election. Four years ago, they said they must do that, and now they're saying you better not do that or we'll retaliate. So they're hypocrites. But then I said also Republicans are hypocrites because they said, no, we're not taking up that nomination so close, especially since it's the opposite party. Uh, And Lindsey Graham said, you can judge me if Donald Trump or Ted Cruz win the presidency and they have a nominee in the fourth year, the final year of their first term. You can judge me and use my words against me when I say we should not take up that nominee. Now Lindsey Graham is flipping around on that and saying, well, I'm taking up the nominee as the head of the judiciary. I've changed my mind. So I've admitted that there's hypocrisy on both sides, right? Because I think that's the responsible, fair thing to do. But there's an article in the Wall Street Journal that I read today, this morning in prepping for the show, that I feel is important enough to share part of with you. It argues that while there is some hypocrisy on the Republican side, it does not rest with leadership, meaning Mitch McConnell. 
Mitch McConnell is being attacked and harangued as being the biggest hypocrite of them all because, as the Senate Majority Leader four years ago, he would not let Merrick Garland get a vote. And as the Majority Leader now, he's going to give President Trump's nominee a vote. But the Wall Street Journal makes a very compelling case that the Republican leadership is being consistent, not hypocritical, in their their points of view from four years ago and today. Let me share some of this with you. In the case of the new court vacancy, it's not even evident that the Republican leadership is being hypocritical, despite the howls of their opponents. It's true that some Republicans, such as Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham, have had to use some awkward rhetorical acrobatics to explain why the rigid barriers they erected four years ago to President Obama's nomination of Judge Garland were merely flexible guide ropes to be moved now that they're no longer convenient. But the principle invoked by Mitch McConnell in 2016 is still intact. The majority leader back then repeated insist, repeatedly insisted his controlling authority was the precedent that the Senate doesn't confirm a nominee in an election year when the White House and the Senate are controlled by opposing parties. Remember that the Senate has not filled a vacancy arising in an election year when there was divided government since 1888, he said, on the Senate floor. This is, again, the Wall Street Journal this morning. In a thorough examination of the historical record for a recent National Review article, Dan McLaughlin cataloged all these cases and found precedent is indeed on the Republican side. There have been 19 cases in which a president of one party nominated a justice for approval by a Senate controlled by the same party between January 1st of an election year and Inauguration Day of the following year. Only two of those nominees, Abe Fortas for Chief Justice and Homer Thornberry to fill Fortas' seat, both in 1968, were not confirmed. But there's a larger principle at stake in any case that the often dispensable one of sticking rigidly to convention, that old idea about democratic will. It's hard to think of a more apt conclusion to this tumultuous process and this tumultuous presidential term, in fact, than the fight that will now presumably unfold over Ginsburg's successor. The reason millions of voters swallowed their doubts about Donald Trump in 2016 was that they believed their, their voices had too often been ignored. They could elect presidents and Congress, but the relentless march of an increasingly authoritarian progressivism seemed immune to the popular will. The Supreme Court was central to this sense of alienation. The transfer of lawmaking powers to activist judges in a whole range of areas that were once decided upon by the voters only deepened the impression that unaccountable elites make the rules a nation of deplorables must live by. In electing President Trump in 2016, and a Republican-controlled Senate that year, and again in 2018, voters were in part daring to defy that rule. If the Senate were to now fail to confirm a justice nominated by that president, it would surely only deepen the cynicism of these voters. There's another sense in which this battle is a fitting one for these times. It's been clear all summer that there's an emerging progressive consensus that considers the nation's institutions, traditional values, and even its history to be fundamentally illegitimate. Should the Democrats win in November, their leaders can be expected to reflect and advance much of that radicalism. A conservative court 
committed to reaffirming rather than rewriting the principles upon which the nation was founded might prove timely indeed. So the journal is really coming down hard on the issue of Mitch McConnell's consistency here based on historical precedent that Mitch McConnell not allowing an opposite party in a divided government to have that hearing four years ago is not the same thing when you have the same party. A lot of people have made that point, don't know if anybody has crystallized crystallized it quite as well as the journal just did. History shows it is on Mitch McConnell's side. Consistency here. Now if it was if it was a two part or excuse me, a same party uh, president and Senate majority and one time they did not allow it to happen, and another time they did. Now we have an issue. But having a Barack Obama Democratic presidency and a Mitch McConnell-led Republican majority four years ago, it was keeping in, again, consistency, keeping with historic tradition, that that appointment not be allowed to have a confirmation hearing in the election year. However, as I just quoted to you from the journal, in cases in which the same party controls the presidency and the uh, con- uh, majority of the Senate, it has happened 19 times in 17 of those times the confirmation was made before the election. And it should be 18 out of 20 uh, before this November 3rd. It should not be that difficult, to be quite frank. Now, you can, you know stew over this as much as you want and say, yeah, but if we win this fight, and by the way, many on the left are conceding defeat. Joy Behar, one of the screeching harpies on The View, said yesterday, we've lost this fight. She conceded they cannot stop now that Romney, Grassley, and Gardner, who which all were considered to be, you know, wild cards here in terms of taking up this vote now uh, because of either A, their dislike for the president, in Romney's case, or B, uh, they're in really, really tough Senate races in the cases of, of Grassley and Gardner. They have all came down on the side of, yes, we will absolutely give our advice and consent to the president's nominee before the election. So it appears as though this, this is something that can get done before the election. But if you are hand-wringing and, and, and worried and stewing about the repercussions of that, I will go back to what I said in the first half hour of the program. Don't fear their threats. They, they're not going to have an appetite in the Senate, even if the Democrats win the Senate control. They're not, there's not going to be an appetite among many Democratic senators to pack the Supreme Court in retaliation for the presence of Amy Coney Barrett on the court. They're not going to have an appetite to fight that fight politically when it comes to their own reelections. Same thing will go in the House. You know, House seats turn over very quickly. They're only two-year terms. And if you think that a bunch of new Democrats in the House are going to want to fit in swing districts and in swing states are going to want to face the voters after agreeing to pack the court or to abolish the Electoral College, that's another threat they've made. Uh, But they've been making these threats for decades, and they can never pull the trigger. Don't be... Look, there's one threat that I think the demon rats have made. And remember, demon rat and Democrat are just one letter apart. 
The one threat that the Demon Rats have made that I would be afraid of is the violence threat. We know this because they already carry that out. They're watching the violence, and it's been going on for about 120 straight nights in some American cities. They do nothing to put it down. They don't tell the president, we don't want your help in controlling the violence. President says, we'll bring in the guard for you, we'll bring in the feds, we'll do whatever we have to do to keep the peace there. No, we don't want it. They like the idea of violence in their streets. And so if they're already green-lighting the violence in their streets and doing nothing to stop it, then if President Trump wins this uh, battle, if you will, and is able to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat with his own nominee, and certainly if he wins the election on November 3rd, then the Democrats will have a threat that we have to be concerned about. And that threat is, of course, to, quote, burn the mother blanker down. This is what they say, burn the whole blanking thing down. Uh, That's what they are threatening us with, radical anarchy. And that is something that I simply cannot um, dismiss. The way I will dismiss the packing of the court, I'll dismiss the Electoral College nonsense, I'll dismiss the, we're going to make Puerto Rico an American state, we're going to make... uh, uh, American Samoa, American state, we're going to make all of these, we're going to expand the, our Senate, because in each of these states, of course, these new states, they would each get two senators, and we're going to expand our majority in the Senate by, by making all of these uh, American territory states. Guam is going to be a state, uh, and I think all of these are just noise, and it's threats to try to intimidate Republicans into not doing this uh, with the president's nominee, but I think all of those threats are idle. They've been threatening many of them for years and have gotten nowhere with them. On the flip side, I think Republican voters, Trump train riders, I think their threat is legitimate. And their threat is to completely abandon the entire Republican Party if President Trump's nominee is not given a full uh, vote in the United States Senate after the Judiciary Committee and uh, you know the regular process. But if they don't get this done for President Trump, I think the entirety of the Trump machine will abandon the, De- the Republican Party and it will never, ever recover. So you think about which threats you are more concerned about. All right, 9.50, we'll come back. I'll give you that Jack Windsor audio next on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 9.55 here. Don't forget, cursing out coming up after the top of the hour. And also, don't forget, uh, at noon today, I'll be back in uh, the big chair, although this time it'll technically be Dennis Prager's chair, sitting in for Dennis uh, nationwide. And looking forward to some great conversation with you then as well. I want to uh, give you what I promised you here. Yesterday, um, the managing editor of the Ohio Star and intrepid investigative journalist for uh, the WMFD television station down in Mansfield, Jack Windsor, who's been a good friend of this program and a good friend, I think, to Ohioans for holding Mike DeWine's feet to the fire uh, in terms of the state response to the COVID virus and uh, the pandemic. Well, Jack has been savage in asking questions of Mike DeWine that no one else will ask all summer long. Yesterday, I think it was the savagiest. Yes, I'm making up a word, but it was the most savage that I've heard thus far. He called Mike DeWine out and essentially said, look, nobody likes you anymore. Why don't you change? And the evidence doesn't prove that we need to be where we are. Why don't you change course? 
Now, he was a little more eloquent than that. Let's listen. Hi, sir. Uh, since a high point of 81% in April, your approval rating for handling COVID has seen the sixth biggest drop in the country. As of late August, as low as 53% approving, and it seems to continue to drop. Now, yesterday, Lieutenant Governor was booed a couple times, warming up for President Trump, who later announced your name to a chorus of boos. Now, obviously, this isn't a popularity contest, but given the large number of Ohioans who oppose your direction, the number of judges who have called orders illegal, and then the most recent announcement uh, by a Republican representative of a bill that seeks to strike down the state of emergency. As in any war, have you begun to define an exit strategy? Because you continue to say that Ohio is open, but businesses are operating at less than 50 percent. And many will not survive taking health insurance and health security away from thousands of Ohioans. So since your oath of office compels you to protect our constitutional liberties, not make sure people don't get sick. What is the metric, not the emotion, but the metric that will cause you to listen to the growing number number of people who are asking you to change directions? Well, well, well. I'm going to stop it here because Mike DeWine's answer was a typical Mike DeWine answer, and that is to say a non-answer. He talked about how I've been booed before, and he told a stupid story about somebody else who's been a baseball player. I've been booed by 30,000 people. It doesn't bother me, but that it makes no difference. The real question there, after the setup, and Jack's questions tend to be a couple of paragraphs long compared to any of the others, because he likes to really set the context uh, before the question. And that context was amazing. You know, just a few months ago, your approval rating was 81%. Everybody loved how you were handling it. Now it's 53%. It's the sixth largest drop among any governor in America. Uh, so now that the, your, your lieutenant governor got booed at the Trump rally, you and your name got booed at the Trump rally. Uh, he said that uh, 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 the lawsuit by Ohio stands up uh, about your constitutional, your unconstitutional orders has been filed. Other judges have already heard suits and declared yes, or you know, files for uh, uh, for injunctive relief declared yes. Your uh, uh, your uh, orders, your health department's orders, are unconstitutional. So, given the fact that the people don't like you, given the fact that the judges have ruled against you, given the fact that there's an even bigger lawsuit pending now by Ohio stands up, ending your state of emergency in the state of Ohio. What's your exit strategy? What metric, and this was such a great question at the end of the setup by Jack Windsor, by what metric will you end all of this? Let's hear that part again. again. Taking health insurance and health security away from thousands of Ohioans. So since your oath of office compels you to protect our constitutional liberties, not make sure people don't get sick. That, That line, too. Also, savage. Your oath of office is to protect our constitutional liberties. You do not take an oath of office to not let anyone get sick. He's right. What is the metric, not the emotion, but the metric that will cause you to listen to the growing number number of people who are asking you to change directions? Well, what is the metric? And the reason he danced for the next four and a half minutes in non-response is because there is no metric. Remember, the metric was, we just can't overwhelm the hospitals. We just need to do this for two weeks back in March. Remember that, right? That was the metric. That has been thrown out the window. Now it's not about hospitalizations or deaths. It's about nobody's allowed to get sick. And never mind the fact that the testing that is being done is so extraordinarily flawed that even the CD said as many as 9 out of 10 tests might have been picking up with that swab deep in the nasal cavity remnants, 
remnants of the virus that are not even enough to make you contagious or make you symptomatic. That the super sensitive nature of the test may be declaring positives in people who are not really positive anymore, that have already had it and were never symptomatic because of it. As many as 90%. So what's your metric? He changes his metrics all the time. Remember he told you about nine weeks ago that we just have to wear masks, mandatory mask mandate for four to six weeks, and then we'll crush this thing? Here we are, nine weeks on, no sign of getting rid of the mask mandate. By what metric will you go to change direction, given all of this that is going against you? And Mike DeWine just laughed and said, I don't mind being booed. (laughs) Jack Windsor, keep doing the work of the Ohio people for us. That was phenomenal. 1001 News Time, Kirsten on next, AM 1420, The Answer.